0: So, study eight, we're looking at what Paul says about living the Christian life. What Paul says about living the Christian life. And you won't be surprised to know that we need two Bible studies to cover all of what he said on this subject. So, starting with what it means to live in society or the implications for the new Christians in their social positions in society. Before I go on with that, it's really important to realise that one of Paul's deepest concerns was that the gospel message should spread throughout the world. Please hold on to that fact, that the gospel message should spread throughout the world, that it would impact the lives of unbelievers and it would bring them to faith in Christ. That's what Paul was all about. And key to the success of this was the way in which those who had already responded to the gospel behaved. How they behaved and how they conducted themselves, not only in the church community, but especially in society. Now, although they'd now been liberated in Christ and they'd come to realise that each believer was equal in the kingdom of God, Paul told them that as far as living in the kingdom of the world was concerned, and I'm quoting from 1 Corinthians 7, 17, quote, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation... The Lord has assigned to them, in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. In other words, believers were to remain in the social position they occupied prior to becoming Christians. So, although in Christ they had been liberated, in Christ they were all equal yet they were to remain in the social position they occupied. Now Paul didn't want there to be any snobbery or arrogance about this. They were to mix freely with one another as a church community and as he says in Romans 12, 16, quote, live in harmony with one another. See, this isn't just about getting on with one another. It's more than that. It's getting on with people who are of a different class to you. A different status in society. It's hard for us to imagine these days being in a church like that. Although, I mean, of course, we have the class system until not fairly uh, recently, and some would say we've still got it. Um, But that's a path I'm not going to go down tonight. We could be here for a while. Um, But they were to mix together. So it's live in harmony with one another, do not be proud but be willing to associate with people of low position. See, he's talking particularly to the well-off and those who were, uh, had their own um, households and they had their own businesses and whatever. Do not be conceited. That's Paul's words. Do not be conceited. So I think he sees it particularly as a problem for what you might call the upper class than he does for the peasantry, than he does for the slaves. So, that is the situation as it to be. Now, remaining in their so- social positions is an example of how, in some respects, believers needed to live lives which still accommodated the cultural and social norms of behaviour. Paul's mission was not, was not to destroy society. That's very important to grasp that. It was not his mission to destroy society by fomenting revolution. (laughs) He could easily have said to the folk, look, you're all free in Christ, you're all equal, go out there and take hold of your rights or whatever. But no, he wasn't in the business of fomenting social revolution. Much as the godlessness of society tormented him, he wasn't in the business of overthrowing it or changing things. You see, it seems that he wanted... The stable order of society to remain unchallenged so that the gospel, okay, here we come back to it. This is what he's really concerned about so that the gospel could continue to be preached unhindered and not be branded as a tool of revolution and squashed. That's what he was concerned about. He did not want measures to be taken against. The Christian Church by the Romans, because they thought that they were seeking to overturn society. They were seeking to overturn society, but not the physical society, if you like, the sort of spiritual aspect of it. Yeah, well, that, that's a different. That's a different thing, and I'll come to that in a moment. You see, Paul believed that the return of Christ was imminent. You have to remember that as well. We we talked about this when I first introduced you back in study three to the whole thing about him writing his letters. The return of Christ was imminent. So what's your top priority? If you think Christ is coming back in the next few months or even a year or two, what is your top priority as a Christian? It's to get people saved, isn't it? It's to spread the gospel Far and wide, before the end of the world. Not to cause social upheaval, that's neither here nor there. It's going anyway. It's passing anyway. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. So why waste time trying to change this present situation when Christ's coming tomorrow and we want people to come to know him as Lord and Saviour? Now, unfortunately... As with several pronouncements in the teachings of Paul and his instructions about living the Christian life, Paul's words on this subject have been hijacked. They have been plucked from their cultural, spiritual and temporal context and used, in this case, to justify the continuance of the class system. And yes, I do mean in this country, besides anywhere else, I'm sure we all know the hymn, All Things Bright and Beautiful. It was published in 1848. When it was published, it contained a particular verse that has since been expunged. You will never see it in words when you see All Things Bright and Beautiful. This verse has been taken out now, but in the 19th century, it was there in big, bold letters. And this is what it said. The rich man in his castle... The poor man at his gate, God made them high and lowly and ordered their estate. Now, if that isn't an underlining of the class system, I don't know what is. And that was written by the same lady who wrote, there is a green hill far away. All right. So this was a central tenet, if you like, of belief, based on Paul saying you should stay, you should be content with where you are in society. God's put you there, stop there. You see, now this is how not understanding the background and context of Paul's writings, again, brings us up to a complete misinterpretation of what Paul is actually saying. He wasn't justifying a social system. What he was doing was urging his contemporaries to be content with their lot in the kingdom of the world until Christ's imminent return be that spiritually speaking with regard to circumcision which he talks about in 1 Corinthians 7:18 to 20 or socially speaking with regard to status interestingly however if you look at 1 Corinthians 7:21 you'll see something and it's this paul does actually encourage slaves to get their freedom if the opportunity arises, he encourages slaves to get their freedom if the opportunity arises. In other words, Paul's saying that there's nothing wrong with seeking to improve your lot in society, but be content at every stage because actually social status is totally irrelevant in God's sight. And therefore, your energies. Will be much better spent in doing, guess what? Spreading the gospel. That's what's necessary for the church. Spreading the gospel. Okay, if you get the opportunity, fair enough, take it. But be content and instead spend your energies spreading the gospel in society. And Paul reminds all believers, irrespective of their social standing, that our ultimate allegiance is not to man, but to Christ, who bought us with his blood and whose slave we are. And he talks about that in chapter 7, verses 22 to 24. Now, while accommodating social norms for the reasons that I've given, unless, of course... They conflicted with allegiance to Christ when there could be no compromise. So if it came to, for instance, saying Nero is Lord, you couldn't do that, right, just to conform, because that was just totally against what Jesus taught. And of course, it was to be resisted. But the way that Christians live their lives should also come as a challenge to the beliefs, practices and lifestyles of that culture. So you accommodate the social norms in this way, but at the same time, you live your life in such a way as to present a challenge to the beliefs and practices and lifestyles of the culture that's around. Sometimes this did bring misunderstandings. I suppose the most extreme example of such a misunderstanding is Christians being accused of cannibalism And they were accused of cannibalism because they ate Christ's body and they drank his blood. And therefore, that gave rise to people outside who didn't understand what was going on and just heard about these things, that the Christians were cannibals in what they were doing. So by preaching the gospel, Paul's aim was not to change society but to cause in the physical form, but was to cause a spiritual revolution to occur in the hearts and minds and lives of people in the kingdom of the world. Now that in turn would inevitably lead to any society it touched being challenged and changed for the better. That would be a result, but it wasn't the first and foremost aim. The first and foremost aim was to preach the gospel. And as people accepted it, it would then have this effect that would permeate into society. Now, Paul was so determined to reach people of all cultures and backgrounds with the gospel that he was prepared to put himself in the place of those he was trying to win for Christ, adapting his approach accordingly so that he might communicate the gospel message to them more effectively. And we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 23, from which I quote, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews." To those under the law, I became like one under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, so as to win those not having the law. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel. That's one Corinthians nine, nineteen to twenty three, I've taken that from. So, the Christian in society, living their lives. And they are to live lives of integrity. They are to live lives of integrity. See, Paul's concerned about dealing with the realities of the kingdom of the world as they are, whether he approves of them or he doesn't, and showing how different they are from those of the kingdom of God. So living the Christian life in the kingdom of the world and the difficulties that that can present is a central subject in Paul's letters. comes back to it time and time again. How you can live a Christian life in the world. Now, understandably, the followers of Christ, nicknamed Christians, Acts 11.26, often struggled as they sought to throw off the grip of the culture which had previously shaped their lives, and as they grappled with the changes in their lifestyles which accepting the gospel demanded. They all came from pagan culture and thinking and suddenly they're having to readjust and they struggled with it. It's not really surprising, is it, that they grappled with this and this is why Paul keeps coming back to it all the time and hammering it home in his letters. So to really help them definitely get a a handle on this, in his letters Paul set out detailed instructions for living Christian life to help believers to understand what was now required of them and so enable them to live their lives of to live lives of integrity as he writes to the Philippians in 127 and I quote whatever happens conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ whatever happens this is the bottom line folks he's saying Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. We'll see how this, again, is something that he's really, really keen on. That we don't do anything that compromises the gospel, that maligns the gospel. Now, what did Paul mean? A manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Well, this included being model citizens and examples of right conduct to others in society so he writes to the philippians chapter 2 14 to 16 quote do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of god without fault in a warped and crooked generation Then you will shine among them. He's talking about in the culture in which they live. You will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And to the Thessalonians, he writes in his first letter, chapter 4, 11 to 12, quote, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. So in other words, you're not to be troublemakers in society. Make it your ambition... To lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. This is what it's all about. What we're projecting into society. The implication being that outsiders would then begin to wonder what was different about these Christians. They don't argue. They don't grumble. They live in an upright way. They don't cause trouble. They get on. They're hard workers. They're trustworthy people. What is it that's different about these people? So that was how they were to live lives of integrity and the impact that they would have by doing so. Now evidently, however, there were some members of the church at Thessalonica and probably in some other churches too, but Thessalonica gets mentioned here, who didn't heed these words and were proving to be layabouts and a complete nuisance. So in his second letter to the Thessalonians, Paul spelt out the importance of having the right attitude to work. Otherwise, they would gain a poor reputation among the people of the city. And what would that do that really annoys Paul? It would harm the gospel message. Do you see? This is really coming through all the time. So he writes... 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 to 12, quote, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy, they are busybodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And in Ephesians 4.28 and Titus 3.14, you will find similar sentiments expressed. So, living lives of integrity that leave a mark on society, that makes society ask, what's different about these people? Answer, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that's what it's all about, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now let's move on to the next section and see that living the Christian life requires us to change our thinking. It requires us to change our thinking. Paul's most detailed and comprehensive list of instructions outlining what it means to live the Christian life is to be found in Ephesians 4, chapter 17 and through to Ephesians 6, 9, that whole block there in the letter, Ephesians four seventeen to six nine. That's the most detailed and comprehensive list. Now this is probably because, if you're wondering, well, why did he do it in the letter to the Ephesians and not any other letter? This is probably because this particular epistle, he seems to have written this as a circular letter, which was intended to be passed around and read aloud in all the churches. That's seemingly what Paul had in mind when he wrote Ephesians, which is why he wrote it as he did and tackled the topics he did within it. You see, Paul wants every Christian to know what is expected of them in their daily lives and relationships. And that can be summed up in one word. And that one word is purity. Purity. I'm quoting from 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 7. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. To live a holy life. Now, Paul begins his list of instructions in Ephesians by showing that living the Christian life means a complete change taking place in our mindset. A complete change taking place in our mindset. Chapter 4, 17. He insists that believers, quote, must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. In the futility of their thinking. Now you've got to remember that most of these people reading this were Gentiles themselves. So he's saying, you know, leave the the beliefs that you had that are futile, that are worthless, and change your mindset. Being saved begins with repentance. And repentance is all about a change of mind. And it's also about a change of direction. It's the two things together. Change of mind, change of direction that results in living in a completely different way from then on. And when we studied... The way of salvation in study six, we saw that clearly there about repentance. When we accept Christ as our Lord and Saviour, our way of thinking, our values, our priorities, our attitudes, our perspective and our understanding of life are all turned upside down, demanding a complete change in our thinking. This is because now as believers... We have become what Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians 5.5 as, and I quote, children of the light. Children of the light. Whereas non-believers have rejected the claims of the gospel and remained, and I quote from Ephesians 4.18, darkened. Darkened is the word he used, contrasting children of light with those in the world are darkened in their understanding. They haven't changed their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. And you'll also see that in Romans 1.21. Their priorities are not the things of the spirit. Their priorities are the things of the flesh. Ephesians 4.19, quote, they have given themselves over to sensuality, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. Paul says that such thinking should not be found in the lives of believers, since we have been taught differently. So 420 to 24, he says, quote, that, however, is not. The way of life you learned when you heard about Christ. You were taught to put off your old self and to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And you get the same sort of thing, Colossians 3, 9-10. In other words, we as believers are to stop living according to our old way of life and now seek to live lives that are right and pure in God's sight. And we can learn what that involves through reading God's word and allowing it to teach us and to change our thinking. To change our thinking. That shows whether it's had an impact on us or not. Has it changed our thinking? We're now, what he describes in 2 Corinthians 5.17 as, and I quote, a new creation. A new creation in Christ. So that's a change of mind. You're a new creation, new mind. So the futile thinking of the world around us should no longer control our minds. Philippians 3, 19-20 says, Their mind, in other words, those that live in the world, the kingdom of the world, their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. Change of thinking. Since we are no longer citizens of this world, we must be heavenly minded heavenly-minded in all our thinking. If you look at Colossians 3, 1 and 2, you'll see that coming through there. Paul then goes on to give some practical examples of how this change of thinking should affect the life of the believer. And the issues he tackles... Both in Ephesians 4, 25 through to 5.20 and Colossians 3, 5 to 10, the issues he tackles in those two passages, were characteristic of the pagan way of life from which many of the first Christians had come. In Colossians 3:7 he says, quote, you used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived. So he's reflecting back to them. How they used to be. Now, Paul is unequivocal in his insistence that living the Christian life means taking drastic action in our personal lives. Living the Christian life means taking drastic action in our personal lives. I mean, Jesus said this as well uh, in extremely strong language. But in Colossians 3, verse 5, Paul says this, and I quote, Put to death, therefore, not put to one side, (laughs) put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. With the clearly intended corollary that believers are not to allow these things to be resurrected. You put them to death and you make sure they stay dead. Now, one of Paul's areas of major concern is the breakdown of human relationships, which grieves the heart of God. Look at Ephesians 4.30. Now, Paul lists various sins of speech, sins of speech which can destroy relationships, and we see them in Colossians 3, 8 to 9, and Ephesians 4, 25, 26, 29, 31, and chapter 5, verse 4. And you'll be delighted to know I'm summarising them for you. These are, first of all, anger. Anger, which if unchecked, leads to rage. Rage being that smouldering, or seething hatred which breaks out into words and deeds. Jesus said it can lead to murder. It needs to be sorted. Secondly, malice. Malice, which if not dealt with, breaks out into brawling and slander, that is to say, evil thoughts, intended to cause hurt, which are put into words and result in violence. So anger and malice. And then the third, obscenities, filthy language, coarse joking and unwholesome, foolish talk. And that's to say foul or abusive words which contaminate both the speaker and the hearer and whose sole purpose is to tear people down rather than to strengthen, encourage and build them up. And the next sins of speech are lies and falsehoods which destroy any semblance of trust in a relationship. In Ephesians 4:27 Paul describes these as footholds. Footholds. These are all footholds that the devil can use to destroy relationships. And he's not to be given these or any other opportunities to do so. Quote, do not give the devil a foothold. So living the Christian life means that believers must fill in the footholds. They must fill in the footholds to deny Satan access to your heart's door, if you like. Can you see that picture? He can't climb up. We must be ruthless, says Paul, and in uh, verse 31 of chapter 4 he says, get rid, get rid of them all. Get rid of all these things that used to characterise the way that you lived. Don't mess around with them, though to put them to death and not allow them to be resurrected. And then Paul also highlights another major contributor to the breakdown of relationships and a foothold for the devil, and that is bitterness. Bitterness, so often twinned with unforgiveness. Paul insists that if somebody hurts or does wrong to us, instead of allowing bitterness and resentment to seize our hearts and to eat us up, we must be prepared to forgive that person and be reconciled to them. To forgive and be reconciled. Paul points out that since Christ has forgiven us, we should respond to his love for us by forgiving those who do us wrong. Quoting from chapter 432, Be kind, and compassionate to one another forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you and in colossians 3:13 bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone forgive as the lord forgave you Forgiving others is an evidence of love. And for Paul, living the Christian life means being loving to everyone without exception. Now, forgiveness is not an easy thing to do. In fact, it's probably one of the hardest things that we ever have to do, is to forgive when we've been hurt. And I could spend a whole evening with you looking at the subject of forgiveness. Haven't got time to do that. Just to say that this is what we should be allowing ourselves to come to. That we are reconciled with people. An evidence of love. Ephesians 5, 1-2, Paul writes, quote, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love. Live a life of love just as god loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to god 1 corinthians 16:14 he says do everything in love romans 12:10 be devoted to one another in love galatians 5:13 to 14 serve one another humbly in love for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command love your neighbor as yourself and Paul continues these verses by using very strong language to warn believers about what happens when there is a lack of love in our relationships galatians 5:15 quote if you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other." And he says something similar in Romans 13:8 to 10. Now loving others expresses itself in many ways. Colossians 3 verses 12 and 14 says, and I quote, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience and over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. So there you've got a list of ways in which love expresses itself. Love breaks down all the barriers that exist between people. Love breaks down all the barriers that exist between people. It doesn't allow prejudice. It doesn't allow discrimination on the grounds of race, colour, gender, ethnicity, status, background, occupation, beliefs or anything else. Galatians 3.28, quote, There is no Jew, nor Greek, slave, nor free, male, nor female, for you are all one In Christ Jesus. No barriers, no prejudice, no discrimination. Writing to in Colossians 3.11, he adds circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian to this list. And he commands the Romans in Romans 15.7 and 12.16, quote, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you live in harmony with one another. We touched on that earlier. And he pleads in Philippians 4 verses 2 to 3 with two ladies called Yoda and Sintici to stop quarrelling and agree to differ in love. Agree to differ in love. By contrast to those two ladies, Paul commends the Thessalonians in his first letter for their, and I quote, love for one another and their love for, quote, all of God's family throughout Macedonia. And that's 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 to 10. So he commends them for their love. Writing to the Corinthians, who lived in a city where there was a temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love, if you can think way back to study two, Paul sets out what the qualities of true love are. See, this is no fluke. Here we've got the temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love, and in the letter to them he's saying, this is what the real qualities of love are, rather than the perverted version that you're witnessing every day. And indeed, in which some of them had been very much involved before they came To Christ. These are qualities which believers are to show in their lives: patience, kindness, humility, politeness, selflessness, long-suffering, forgiveness, truthfulness, protection, trust, hope, perseverance, and constancy, if I can say it. And I'm sure you know where that's all from. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 8. And we'll be doing more about the context and detail of that passage when we get to Studies 12 and 13. So, living the Christian life means being loving and forgiving, it also means being caring, being caring towards others. For example, this can be expressed by living in peace, living in peace with one another. Romans 12, 18 and 14, 19, quote, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. This means that believers must also seek to support, please, And encourage one another. Romans 15, 2. Each of us should please our neighbours for their good to build them up. 1 Thessalonians 5, 11 and 13. Quote, encourage one another and build each other up. Live in peace with each other. And you get similar expressed in Titus 3 and verse 2. Paul commands believers to live peace and I quote, without anger or disputing. Without anger or disputing, 1 Timothy 2.8. This means that Christians must settle arguments peaceably rather than taking each other to court. Paul was horrified that this was happening in Corinth. Believers were dragging one another into court to be judged by unbelievers And he goes berserk about it. And he says 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 8 is all about it. Here's an extract. Quote, if any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Is it possible there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court and this in front of unbelievers. You yourself cheat and do wrong and you do this to your brothers and sisters. He's totally horrified by what's going on. This is not the way to live the Christian life. This is not the way to get the right kind of reputation in society so the gospel will flourish. So just do the opposite frequently paul refers to living in peace at the beginning or end of his letters for example take 2 corinthians 13:11 finally brothers and sisters rejoice strive for full restoration encourage one another be of one mind changing your thinking live in peace and the love and the god of love and peace will be with you And Paul mentions many other ways that a caring attitude can be expressed. He encourages believers to, and I quote, comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. That's 2 Corinthians 1 verse 4. He wants Christians to be hospitable, to show empathy and to be sensitive To the needs of others. And I quote from Romans 12, 13 and 15. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. There's the empathy. He wants Christians to be encouragers, to be magnanimous and to be determined to do good to all. 1 Thessalonians 5 14 to 15, says this, quote, Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. So let's move on to uh, the subject of being morally upright. Being morally upright. Living the Christian life, Paul says, and teaches quite clearly means being morally upright in all matters of behaviour and conduct. And you can see this quite clearly in his letter to the Ephesians. Now, what we have to realise with all these things is that most of them are in complete contrast to the ways of the society from which many of them had come. Characterised as it was by, and I quote, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy drunkenness, orgies and the like. Galatians 5, 19 to 21. And Romans 13, 13 paints a similar picture. So you see, for Paul, such distinctiveness was so important that he writes, Ephesians 5, verse 3, but among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Not even a hint, that's high standards, isn't it? Not even a hint of any kind of immorality or impurity. They needed to break away, to break away from their old lifestyles as they were now, quote, God's holy people, of whom different standards were required. Now this contrast in lifestyles will clearly show the difference between living as a citizen of the world and being a member of God's kingdom. So let's first look then at sexual immorality. For Paul, sexual immorality means, so let's get our terminology clear from the start, sexual immorality means any deviation, any deviation from God's original creation plan for sexual relations between human beings, namely one man and one woman together for life. Quoting Genesis 2.24, A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. And this phrase, one flesh, indicates the inseparable union a man and his wife were to form. In other words, as far as Paul's concerned, God's creation plan for sexual relations was heterosexual, monogamous, marriage. So Paul is clear that living the Christian life means being celibate when single and faithful when married. Celibate when single, faithful when married. Paul refers to sexual immorality several times in his letters and not surprisingly though because of the situation in Corinth it's when writing to the believers there that he focuses on this topic in more detail than in any of his other epistles, where he often just gets a mention, as in flee sexual immorality. But in Corinthians, he really lays it out. However, it's clear from these other references that he makes that his instructions to the Corinthians apply just as much to everyone else as well, just as much as they do to the Corinthians. Now in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul begins by dealing with an actual case of incest in the church there. In verse 1 we read and I quote, "...it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife." a phrase which suggests that the woman involved was the man's stepmother. Now Cicero, the well-known Roman orator, confirms that incest was virtually unknown in Roman society. So Paul is shocked to learn that the Corinthians are not only tolerating this situation but are proud of it. They're making a big thing of it. They seemingly considered it was an expression of how open-minded, how liberated they were. Actually, it would have been given the church notoriety in society for all the wrong reasons and giving totally the wrong impression of what the grace of God and freedom in Christ was all about. No wonder Paul comes down hard on them in verse 2, quote, And you are proud? Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning? and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this. Doesn't miss his words, does he? This situation, you see, he's saying, should have caused them as much pain as losing a beloved relative would. And they should be ashamed that they were condoning something, even ungodly Gentiles didn't countenance. And this was all going to be bringing the gospel into disrepute the correct response was to expel this man from the church to correct the impression being given to society that such behaviour was acceptable among this new group of people called Christians. In passing, the fact that the woman involved is not mentioned suggests that she may not actually have been a member of the church. But Paul makes clear that this principle also applies to how they should deal with anyone in the church who is acting in any way which is immoral. And verse 11 of chapter 5, quote, You must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. In other words, have no fellowship with them, whatever. Now Paul urges believers to avoid all forms of sexual immorality including promiscuity, adultery, the use of private or temple prostitutes and homosexuality. And There's a whole list of references where he uh, talks about this that I've given you. Romans 1.24, 26-28. Romans 13, verses 9 and 13. 1 Corinthians 5.1. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9, 13, 15, 16 and 18. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2 and 10, verse 8. 2 Corinthians 12, 21. Galatians 5, 19. Ephesians 5, 3. Colossians 3, 5. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. And 1 Timothy 1, 10. For Paul, what makes these practices sinful is that they all fly in the face of what form God intended sexual relations to take. And to reject God's intentions is to reject God himself. Now, in keeping with the Jewish tradition from which he came, Paul believed that homosexuality and lesbianism are unnatural. And this we see in Romans 1:26 to 27. Quote, Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another, end of quote. Now, such sexual relationships were well known in Paul's day and gay marriages, in case you thought that was just a 21st century thing, took place in Roman times. Apparently, the Emperor Nero was involved in two such cases. Now, Paul believed that humans are not created to perform homosexual acts and that somehow they pay the price for such an unnatural practice. Romans 1.27, quote, Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. There's a lot of debate about what actually that might mean. However, here's an important point to notice Paul does not single out homosexuals for special treatment. He's just as damning about heterosexuals who indulge in sexual promiscuity, adultery, prostitution, deviancy or indeed any form of immoral behaviour. They will also come under God's awesome judgement. Quoting from 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. End of quote. But, like many of the members of the church in Corinth, those who respond to the gospel of God's love, grace, mercy and forgiveness can be cleansed from these and all other sins and find their place in God's kingdom. As Paul writes in chapter 6, verse 11, quote, And that is what some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So the congregation he's writing to contained people who had been involved in all those kinds of sexual immorality. And yet, of course, when they came to Christ, they were cleansed from that sinfulness. Now, what are we to make of this today? Now, some would say that in cultures where sex outside heterosexual monogamous marriage, including homosexuality, is acceptable, then the churches should accommodate these developments. That's one point of view. Others would maintain that we need to distinguish between moral imperatives, which were given to stand for all time because human nature remains the same. We need to distinguish then between moral imperatives and socio-cultural developments, which are in a constant state of flux, reflecting changes in social attitudes, political systems, scientific discoveries, societal organisation and so on. And in fact, the symbolism of hair length is a good example that I shall return to in study 11. They would say that the principles of morality as taught in the New Testament prescribe the way we should interact socially and sexually for our greatest benefit – in any and every culture, no matter when in history we happen to live. Still others would go further and say that since the main purpose of sexual intercourse is the procreation of children, homosexual relationships are therefore indeed unnatural, as children cannot result from such a union. And they would add that sex is more than just about expressing love and mutually gratifying pleasure – These are both means to the end of encouraging human reproduction. So, various views on this subject. Later in that same chapter, Paul reminds believers, quote, that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. Chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. This means we must be very careful what we do with our bodies making sure we do not displease God by how we use them or treat them as Paul says in verse 13 quote the body however is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body and in verses 15 and 17 Paul uses having sex with a prostitute as an example Of dishonouring God with our bodies. Quote, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ Himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. And in Thessalonians 4 3 to 6, Paul repeats his command to avoid sexual immorality. Telling believers to, and I quote, learn to control your own body. That's a pretty significant phrase. Learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. Some food for thought there, I think. So, sexual immorality. Now, what about marriage then? Well, it's clear, as we've already seen, that Paul sees sex as a gift from God to be enjoyed between a man and a woman in a committed marriage relationship, 1 Corinthians 7. Now, in this chapter, Paul is actually responding to questions sent to him on the subject of marriage. So he's not setting out a complete treatise on this topic. Rather, he's presenting a set of principles, not a list of rules. It seems that underpinning Paul's answers to these questions and also others that he addresses elsewhere in his letters was the view that Christ's return was imminent and therefore the most important matter in hand was the spread of the gospel. That's where we came in today. And here we are, we're still seeing this popping up all over the place when he's talking about different aspects of living the Christian life. So, anything which hampered full commitment to this task of spreading the gospel was to be avoided, if at all possible. Otherwise, it would become a distraction and take a believer's time and availability away from his main mission. (coughs) So verses 29 to 31 in chapter 7, quote, What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. The time is short. Now, before we read on, notice the number of knots in these verses that follow. And I'm continuing the quote now. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. End of quote. So Paul goes on to say that unmarried people are, quote, concerned about the Lord's affairs, unquote, and their aim is to, quote, be devoted to the Lord, end of quote. By contrast, married people are, quote, concerned about the affairs of this world, unquote, and pleasing their spouse, and their, quote, interests are divided, rather than being able to live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. That's verses 32 to 35. Now it appears that including the questions asked of Paul were, which is the more desirable, remaining unmarried, in other words, celibacy, or being married? And what advice would you give to those who are unmarried? (coughs) Now, in view of the above, it's not surprising that Paul responds by saying, chapter 7, verse 1, it is good for a man not to marry, which can be also rendered, quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, end of quote. To do so, in other words, to marry, would mean a quite proper commitment to his wife and subsequent family, which would detract from his ability to contribute to the cause of spreading the gospel. In other words, if you've got a family, you're not as free to take part in spreading the gospel as if you're not married and you haven't got a family. For this reason, Paul expresses the desire that everyone were in the same situation as he is but recognises that not everyone is called to a life of singleness. As he said in verse 7, I wish all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. However, since marriage is preferable to sexual immorality, verse 2, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband, for it is better to marry than burn with passion. So even though... Spreading the gospel is what he is focusing on. He said, even in that situation, it's better, I'd rather people got married you know, than indulged in sexual immorality. Normal sexual relations should pl- take place within the marriage. As he says in verse 4, the wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband, and also vice versa. If you look at verse 4. Now, they may agree to deprive themselves of such relations for a period of time, for example, to devote themselves to prayer, but must come back together before too long. Otherwise, either party may stray into sexual immorality, quoting from verse 5, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control, end of quote. So you can see what Paul's getting at. He's saying... Because the Lord is coming, it's better not to marry and take on family responsibilities because that means you're free to take on, as your main responsibility, the spreading of the gospel. But if you really feel that you need to get married, then do so. That's basically a summary of what he's saying. And he also reminds the Christian couples in the church that Jesus said that they should stay together and not seek a divorce, verses 10 and 27. Although, of course, we know that Jesus did add, quote, except for marital unfaithfulness, unquote, Matthew 5.32. Now, be clear about this. Paul is focusing on the ideal situation here and strongly encourages reconciliation. That's his thing. He wants to see broken marriages reconciled. That's the ultimate. That's the ideal. He doesn't say what should happen, however, if reconciliation proves impossible and we all know it does in certain situations and Christians of course still differ on this subject of divorce and remarriage I've written a bit more about it in the um, book I wrote on the Sermon on the Mount it seems that some members of the church at Corinth were Christians but their spouses were not and they wanted to know whether they had to stay married to them as it seems probable that they were having a rough time Paul says that they should stay together as long as the unsaved spouse, quote, is willing to live with them. Look at verses 12 and 13. Paul's reasoning seems to be that the unbelieving spouse will be influenced by the Christian partner and the children have the advantage of being in a family where the Christian faith is lived out. Look at verse 14. And this may indeed lead to the salvation of the spouse not to mention the children. Look at verse 16. But Paul makes the point that the believer is under no obligation to try and remain with the unbeliever. If they were forced to live together, there would be no peace in the home. Look at verse 15. However, he does stop short of saying that this sort of situation would allow divorce and remarriage to take place, because the ultimate hope in all cases, as far as Paul is concerned, is that of reconciliation. It's only on the death of the spouse, then, that the remaining partner is free to marry anyone they wish, provided, of course, that they are a believer. Look at verse 39. But even in this case, because of the times they're living in, Paul still maintains that they will be happier staying single. Look at verse 40 for the sake of the gospel. Now we've already seen that Paul's mentioned various other activities which constitute wrong, impure behaviour in conjunction with his comments on sexual immorality. Contemplating his next visit to Corinth, Paul's not only concerned about the sexual immorality he might find, but also other kinds of immoral behaviour, such as, quote from 2 Corinthians 12.20, discord, Jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance and disorder. Greed another example given of improper conduct which believers are to avoid. Look at Ephesians 5 and verse 3. This is where money and possessions become the priorities in life rather than the worship of God which makes it idolatry. Indeed, Paul describes a person who allows this to happen in their lives as, quote, an idolater. Look at chapter 5, verse 5. Now, Paul advocates being content with what we have. We've seen that already. As he himself has learned to be. If you look at Philippians 4, 11 to 12. And he warns believers about the pitfalls that await those who are greedy and succumb to the lure And love of money. When he writes to Timothy, 1st Epistle, chapter 6, verses 6 to 7 and 9 to 10, he says this, and I quote, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Notice it's often misquoted as money, but it's not. It's the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, he goes on, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So, that's his warning there. Now he's got four commands for those believers who are rich. Number one, not to be arrogant. Quote, this is all quotes from these verses. Not to be arrogant because of what they've accrued. To put their hope in God rather than the vagaries of wealth. To be rich in good deeds as well as rich in wealth. And to be generous and willing to share to share what they have with those in need. This is 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19, which concludes, and I quote, in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. End of quote. So just to conclude what we've been learning this evening, it's clear that in all matters of morality, Paul believes God's way is the best way for a happy and fulfilled life.